The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Welcome to the Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll, and the only place you can hear the Duff McKagan joke of the week. Hey, Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan calling. Hope everybody's doing well. Uh, listen, I'm you know pl- making plans for the end, and uh, I'm taking um, put my ashes in a, in a glass urn. Yeah, remains to be seen. Thank you very much. Goodbye. <laughs> Duff's on a roll. It's the water in Brazil. Some great jokes coming out of Duff as they are on tour in South America. they got a few dates left before they head uh, to Mexico and Asia and before they wrap up the year in Australia and New Zealand. Thank you, Duff, for bringing the jokes every single Friday. And we'll definitely have comedy on Chris Jericho's Rock and Wrestling Rager at C4 Leaf Clover. Brad Williams is our director of laughs. Tons of great music as well. Quiet Riot, Royal Bliss, Raven, the all-female Kiss cover band Pris, Dave Spivak Project, Quarantine will be there, and of course, Fozzie as well. Guardians of the Jukebox too. AEW will be there, and for the first time ever, the Jericho Cruise Oceanic Championship will be decided on the cruise as well. Flip Gordon is going to be taking on the winner of a four-man tournament. Who's in the tournament? Stay tuned to find out. We set sail February 2nd, going to our very own private island, Grand Stirrup K. Still a few cabins left, so book yours now at chrisjerichocruise.com. All right, today in the show, it's all about The Rock as I welcome the crew behind the upcoming Ronnie James Dio documentary, Dio, Dreamers Never Die. It's hitting theaters on September 28th. Get your tickets and more information at dodreamersneverdie.com. I got Ronnie's widow, Wendy Dio, returning. Uh, Eddie Trunk is here, returning. And filmmakers Don Argett and Damian Fenton. Don and Damian work with Wendy, who gave them access to the treasure trove that is the Ronnie James Dio archives. Eddie Trunk, longtime friend of Ronnie and a Dio fan, longtime friend of mine as well, contributed as well. I'm also going to hear some of the great stories behind what it took to get the Dio documentary made. We talk about the timing, why it was important to do now. Wendy tells us some great stories about Ronnie's days with Rainbow and Black Sabbath, what their relationship with Ozzy and Sharon was like through the years. She remembers picking up and moving to California after Ronnie left Sabbath and then mortgaging their house to pay for the Dio Holy Diver album and tour. She talks about the origin of the Dio horns and how Ronnie felt about his height in the huge world of rock and roll. Uh, they also talk about Hearing Aid, the classic uh, rock and roll all-star project in the 80s, and the footage they found in Ronnie's archives that shows for the first time, uh, it showed for the first time in the Dio Dreamers Never Die documentary. You know, we talk about music and Eddie's quest to get Dio into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's a great tribute to a legendary metal icon, one of the greatest singers of all time. Just ask Jack Black, Ronnie James Dio. Dio Dreamers Never Die starts now on Talk is Jericho. We'll just jump right into it, guys. Damon, Don, welcome. Good to have you guys. Been looking forward to this for a while. The new documentary, Dreamers Never Die, about uh, Ronnie James Dio. It's really, really well done, and there's so much to talk about and so much to discuss about this amazing person and very uh, uh, a lot of different sides to Ronnie James Dio. And the last time, uh, we've got Eddie Trunk and Don Argot and Damon Fenton, who directed it, and, of course, Wendy Dio, Ronnie's wife, who probably helped spearhead this whole thing. I just read Ronnie's book, Wendy, and it was great. It cut off right when he headlines Madison Square Garden. I was wondering if this documentary would be the same. No, it goes all the way from soup to nuts. 
What was the decision to finally do this documentary? I'm sure you've been working on it for a long time. Well, you know, a lot of people have asked me through the years to do a documentary. Just time just wasn't right. The people weren't just right. And then um, BMG, who financed it, said, you know, do you want to do a documentary? And I thought, okay, yes. They brought me lots of different people to look at, to talk to, but none of them were right. And then I met Don and Demian, and it was like they were fans of Ronnie's already. They knew a lot about Ronnie, and it just seemed right. And the more and more we worked together, the more and more I liked them. So how do you even start, Don and Damien? You guys can jump in and putting together a documentary about such a storied career and, and amassing all of the great footage and stuff from the, I mean, the, the, the stuff you guys have from the 50s even and his old recordings. And all that. Like, where do you even start and how do you kind of get all of these archives? Yeah, I mean, at least in terms of getting the archives, you know, Wendy is tough and Wendy is protective of Ronnie's <laughs> legacy you know we met wendy and we slowly had to earn her trust and then I'll, I'll never forget this moment i've been telling this story but once we started to really know that we liked each other she trusted us we were explaining our vision she was giving us little tidbits little pieces of archival here and there there was this day when we were in los angeles and she finally said okay get in the car let's go so we get in the car we go to this climate controlled storage spot and she pulls up a like a rolling door for a garage door and it's full of tapes and shit. And we're like, what? You've been holding back, you know? And uh, so that was, that was like our introduction to the archives. And it was a massive undertaking because as exciting as that is, you're like, oh shit, this is a lot of stuff to go through. I mean, a lot of the stuff that was in there, you know, was a lot of duplicate stuff. So it was, there's a ton of shit, but there was also a lot of it was the raw tapes from uh, Hearing Aid which Dem and I grew up like watching MTV and like, you know, like that we would, we always joke, like we were the generation that like waited around MT to watch MTV for the one or two times they'd play like Quiet Riot or some kind of metal music video. And then, you know, obviously waiting for Headbangers Ball on the weekends, but it was such a big deal to be able to like go through the raw tapes of the making of that documentary because Obviously, we knew we, we'd seen the, the finished film that has been done for a while, but there's so much stuff. And, you know, we tried to include some of that stuff in the documentary of, of like never before seen moments from from that. And you know, just such a magical time. And just to be able to go through that was such a such a privilege, you know. Let's talk about that because we don't have to go in chronological order here. Hearing Aid was such a big deal. And Eddie, you can attest to this because at the time when Hearing Aid came out, and I want to talk about it with Wendy too, it was We Are the World, a Band-Aid. In Canada, they had Northern Lights, which was just a bunch of nobody would ever heard of any of these people except they had Neil Young and Getty Lee. And that, and that was it. They had Tears Are Not Enough. So we were just waiting like, I remember seeing Steve Perry in uh, We Are the World and go, at least there's one, like, rock guy in there. But how big was it, Eddie, when Hearing Aid was finally released? Oh, it was huge. I mean, as somebody that's been in broadcasting now, specializing in hard rock music for now 40 years next year, I was always railing against the fact that this music was always so marginalized and people always put it in this little box and they didn't give it a chance to really get out into the mainstream. I mean, in my, my whole history, I've found that there's so many more people that love this kind of music that necessarily don't wear the uniform, if you will. You know, that, you know, there's doctors, there's surgeons, there's athletes, there's actors, there's all these people that love this music. Then there's a lot of people who think, oh, I can just pick out a metal guy. No, you can't. People would never look at me and think I was a metal guy. I love the fact that it put metal and hard rock in a positive light and showed the charitable contributions that Ronnie brought to it. It was a great song. The performances were great. And for me, even back then, when it first came out, it's just a young guy getting started in this business. It just made me feel great because I just hate the stereotypes and the marginalization that comes with this music. And that helped knock some of it down. I really appreciated that aspect of it, in addition to, obviously, the charitable component and the fact that it was a kick-ass song. You know, Wendy, it's funny because when, when that came out, I remember, because I'm the same as Eddie, I remember it was such a big deal, but I, I literally remember saying this, not just because you're, you're here right now. I was like, who else could do this? 
Like only Dio could do this because Dio always kind of flew the flag for heavy metal. He also had that such an intelligent voice. Uh, you could tell he was a charitable guy. You could tell that he was hard nosed. Like he's the guy that could rein all these cats in to the studio. Was that one of the reasons why I put it together, Wendy? And how hard was it to get all of these musicians and to make them all behave? <laughs> well, you know, musicians, hard rock musicians, metal guys are always, every time, give their time and their talent. Always. I mean, they get mm -hmm. put down for it. And I think really we wanted to do it because because we were the dirty, nasty, heavy metal people that were never included in We Are The World. <laughs> right. Nobody wanted us. And, oh, God, not those people. And I think that's one of the things that why it got together was because of that reason that Ronnie wanted to do something and, and, you know, to show them that, you know, we could do it too. Why shouldn't we? And there was no problem with finding people. We, we had a, you know, everybody that was anybody at that time was involved in it. The hard part was getting the managers and the record labels to sign off on it. That was the hard part, not from the musicians, never from the musicians. If I can jump in there real quick, I can draw a parallel to this because here in a, beyond the music and beyond how it made me feel as a fan, it actually inspired me to do something myself about 20 years ago. And that was a similar thing happened after 9-11, which we just had the anniversary of the other day. There was a big charity concert in New York City, and it was wonderful. Paul McCartney and everybody that played at Madison Square Garden. But all the metal acts were excluded from that. You know, somebody wanted to contribute and play and nobody was allowed to do it because it was like, oh, that nasty, dirty, hard rock, heavy metal. We don't want that as part of it. So it actually it actually inspired me and taking a page out of Ronnie's book to go. And I'm, I'm like, damn it, I'm going to do my own benefit. And I put together a show in New York City called New York Steel that happened months after 9-11. That was nothing but hard rock and metal artists. And we raised over $100,000 for the Police and Firefighters Widows and Orphans Fund. And that was very inspired. And the, the, the feeling of doing that for me personally was very inspired by what Ronnie had done with Hearing Aid because I'm like, well, you know what? The metal community is charitable. We are good people. These are not people that are sacrificing goats out in their backyard. They want to do the right thing and we're going to do the right thing. And they all came together. Not that there's anything wrong with that. No, not exactly. <laughs> nothing against goat sacrificers, but <laughs> so so it had a it had an influence. I think personally, beyond just the greatness of the song and the moment and the charity, what I liked so much about Hearing Aid was it put a positive light on a form of music that I think is very wrongly marginalized and minimalized which Dio always did, you know, but every great documentary though, has a, a theme to it, has a story. And obviously, once again, we talk about the career of Dio and all of the great stuff he did. When you guys were starting to put this together, Damien and Don, because there, there is a thread to this that I can see. When did you start seeing it? And were you thinking of it as an overall arc or you can't just put together a bunch of cool clips. There right. has to be a story behind it. Totally. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why it was so for Dem and I uh, growing up Ronnie fans and metal fans, like knowing, understanding this community. I, I always, I, we always take the approach no matter what we do. Like we did a film a couple of years ago about the lead singer of Imagine Dragons. Now I was not a huge Imagine Dragons fan, but I, it doesn't, I don't need to be a fan of the music, right. you know, in order to make a, a, a good film. But I think for us, to be able to do a film about somebody like Ronnie, who we know is, you know, we feel the responsibility and the weight of what that means to, to, to do a Ronnie Dio documentary. But I think at the same time, he is somebody as you, when you start to hear the interviews, listen to the music, really think about it from a storytelling standpoint that, yeah, like he's the guy he is, the, has been this constant that he's never wavered from, you know, the person that he was growing up in Cortland to the person that he became in Dio and becoming Dio. And I think it's that believing in yourself, you know, that the songs are all empowering. And I think so much metal music and why kids like us, when we're growing up and dealing with our own shit as, you know, kind of trying to figure out the world, we gravitate towards this music because the messages are in there. Sometimes, you know, you're not paying attention necessarily to the message. It might just be the whole like 
vibe of a song or whatever. But as you start to drill down, you start to hear the same kind of themes that Ronnie's sings about, which is like, never give up, believe in yourself, like always walk the walk. And I think like so much of metal music and punk rock music that Dem and I listened to growing up is a direct, you know, correlation to who we are as people now, what we do as a career, what, you know, because like we've been kind of given the messages from people like Ronnie growing up that you can do what you want to do and don't let anybody tell you you can't. You know, I think like that line that's in heaven and hell, the world is full of kings and queens who blind your eyes and steal your dreams like that. That to me is a kind of the thesis of the film, right? It's like at every turn, all the adversity that Ronnie kind of like got thrown at him, he never gave up and he always pushed through it. So I think like that was for us, like there was those themes that were emerging from the music, from him as, you know, talking about life and and interviews and stuff that we were able to mine. And yeah, I mean, we, we just wanted to make sure that we represented Ronnie's spirit and what he was all about and, you know, in, in the doc. And that quote from Heaven and Hell is under my yearbook photo in the 1982 <laughs> yearbook. That's all it says. Eddie Trunk, thank God I made it out of high school and I put that quote. So that's how much that meant to me. You'll see it if you ever find my yearbook. It's there. And then that's the theme that I picked up from the film. And Wendy, you know, it just it blows my mind how many times... Ronnie and you by his side or behind him had to start over and even pre-Wendy deal. He's, he's got this burgeoning crooner career. He gets in this major car crash. Then he gets into Elf and then he gets into Rainbow and then that ends and he's got to start over again. Then he's got to get into Sabbath and then that ends and he's got to start over again. And then the 90s hits, he's got to start over. It's like it never ended for you guys. No. It was one after another. <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing you know it's like that's what we wanted to portray to people that you know Ronnie wasn't just suddenly a star we went through a lot of changes in our life and you know I mean we had hard times we had low times but most of the time we had good times because you know what I believed in Ronnie's talent he believed in my business and we just we just did it you know we just carried on pick ourselves up and start all over again and and you know it was exciting times too the longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. It was interesting to me, and, and you probably can talk about this because you're, you're much older than me. Oh, a few, stop a few, it. A few years older than me. I missed out on Rainbow because I just wasn't old enough to get it. But for Ronnie to step back from this very successful band, and once again, going back and listening to Rainbow now, it's just all genius stuff. But for him to, to leave the band because he didn't want to write songs about relationships or was hesitant to took a lot of balls for a guy to do that from such from from this is a big time rock and roll uh, creation here yeah no doubt i mean i am not that much older than you chris so as a result <laughs> <laughs> and i'm, I'm way, way better physical shape so there's that. <laughs> but for me uh, because of my age despite how old you think i am i was too young to really know about rainbow when ronnie was in it So my introduction with Ronnie actually came with the more commercial band with Joe Lynn Turner and the radio hits that they had. That was obviously what Richie Blackmore really wanted to do with that band, which is why he went out and got Joe and and chased that more melodic thing. But yeah, it's an amazing thing that Ronnie, you know, didn't want to go down that road and didn't want to, I guess, for lack of a better term, sell out to American radio. And for me, it was a huge eye opener. When I went back and discovered the Dio records with Rainbow, you know, because I had only known Rainbow really. And I think this speaks for many people in America because just the family tree of Deep Purple, Deep Purple was just so much bigger and still are in Europe than they are here. And I think that the same thing with Rainbow. So Rainbow with Ronnie was way bigger in other parts of the world than I think they were here. And then, of course, this whole different version of Rainbow comes. And then you hear about, well, Ronnie was in, for me, it was like Ronnie was in Rainbow. 
So then as a kid, I would go back and I, I'll ne never forget getting Rising and listening to it and hearing Stargazer, which to me is one of the greatest pieces of music ever made. I was like, whoa, this is a whole different world than Street of Dreams or Stone Cold. Which <laughs> right, right. Great songs, but they were commercial rock songs of the time. This was like epic, massive, incredible stuff. So it was very eye-opening to me. And I, of course, since, uh, absolutely love the, the Ronnie Rainbow stuff. But I was definitely a little late to it just because of my age and because I just don't think that that era of the band was on uh, on U.S. radar like it would have been in Europe where Blackmore doing a band out of purple was such a bigger story. How was that for you, Wendy, when Ronnie made that decision? Was that something you stood behind? Were you hesitant? Was it hard? I always stood behind Ronnie and what he wanted to do. Uh, obviously, it was a very hard time for us because we lived in a big house in Connecticut, paid for by the band and everything. And so when we left, we really didn't have any money. We didn't have anything. Uh, luckily, my grandmother left me a little money when she passed away. And so we decided we should just go back to L.A. and see what we could do. We came back and Ronnie was starting like three different kinds of bands uh, and uh, one with uh, Skunk Baxter, actually. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> and the one with some elf people and, and just going through what we were trying to get something happening for Ronnie. Didn't know what it was, but at least Ronnie was being able to do his own decision to do what he wanted to do because Ronnie never cared about money. He never cared about fame. He never cared. He just wanted to do his music the way he wanted to do it. And uh, luckily he uh, bumped into uh, Tony in the Rainbow and then joined Black Sabbath. Well, it's interesting, too, because you say in the documentary, and you've said it many times, that when you first met Ronnie, you thought he was a nice guy, but a little bit too short. Yep. Oh, yep. And I know Tony told me the same thing when he first met Ronnie, same thing. He's, he's too, I think especially Don Arden was like, this guy's too short to be singing in Black Sabbath. It's something that we kind of laugh about now. But I'm sure at the time that was it's like if you watch the offer, the 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 great series that's out right now about the making of the Godfather, they did not want to cast Al Pacino in the Godfather because they said he was too short. And now you're looking back like he's one of the greatest actors ever. Dio's one of the greatest singers ever. I, I'm sure at the time though, that was something that was probably a hindrance to him. Oh, he's too short. He'll never he'll never do anything. Was that something that bothered Ronnie at all? I think it bothered him when people said things about his age or about his height, but he, he was really good at it. If an interviewer would say something about that, he just passed it on and talked about something completely different. He always knew how to talk about something that he wanted to talk about and not mm -hmm. what they wanted to talk about. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, great singers. Paul Rogers is short, and he's a great too, you know, Bruce Dickinson's not that tall either. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean, it's not. It's not about the height. It's about the voice. <laughs> Guys, when you were putting together this documentary, and obviously Eddie was great in it, and there's so many great talking heads and experts. Was there a list of guys that you wanted to have and girls to, to get, and was there some that you couldn't get? I think we did this during the pandemic, so that screwed a few things up. But in there's so many people want to talk about Ronnie that in a weird way you have to pare it down. You have to kind of close the door because we could we could probably have 100 people in this film telling great stories about Ronnie. You know, what's amazing about it is Don and I, again, this is a surreal experience for us. We get to walk into people's homes that they don't know us, but since Ronnie and Wendy have surrounded themselves with like the coolest people in the business, they let us in, everybody we met was just so kind and so cool. There's that old, you know, moniker, don't meet your heroes, but we got to meet everybody and they were all so cool. So I think that's a testament to how Ronnie kind of, and Wendy put together their little world. Um, they just surrounded themselves with great people. It's really cool. Like when you see Jack Black and obviously Jack's been a huge proponent of Dio for many years and kind of a little bit of a career resurgence, at least to a different demographic when Pick of Destiny comes out. And it's such a great opening uh, montage with, like like we said, like Meatloaf and, and Dio and Jack mentions he's not even in it. It's the little kid playing Jack Black. But, I mean, did that kind of give Ronnie a, a kind of a modern-day boost, Wendy, as far as his street cred and kind of opening up to new fans, in your opinion? 
probably did. He enjoyed doing it. He had such a good time doing that. But then again, you know, Jack and Tenacious D got a uh, Grammy because they sang Us in Line and they got a Grammy and I, from that, which, you know, <laughs> that was pretty good. And I think Jack was really happy about that. <laughs> With the flute solo. That's the yeah. best part of last yeah. <laughs> solo. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Eddie, uh, once again, talking about just kind of the impact of, of Dio, now you're actually probably just getting into the business. I know it was a little bit early on, but when Dio joins Black Sabbath, it's similar to when, you know, Sammy Hagar joins Van Halen or you've got these, the, you know, Bruce joins Iron Maiden. In your neck of the woods, was there a pushback that Ronnie was in or was he universally accepted right away? How was that for you? Well, I mean, getting Heaven and Hell was a hugely pivotal moment for me as a young rock fan. I was in high school when Heaven and Hell came out. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't have a great awareness of Sabbath previous to Heaven and Hell. My gateway band into rock music, as you know, Chris, was, was Kiss a couple of years earlier. 77 was my first concert. So as a, as a young kid, those first couple of years, there were no other bands than Kiss. Like any other band was a threat to Kiss. So you couldn't let anybody else in. That was my mentality at like 12 years old. <laughs> And then when I started to explore other music and say, okay, I have to figure out around the age of 14, I said, I got to figure out, I guess there is more music than Kiss I have to start listening to. And I won the Heaven and Hell album on the boardwalk at the Jersey Shore. Back in those days, they had all these stands on the boardwalk and you put a quarter on a number. And if the number landed and you won, you could pick any record you wanted to. <laughs> And you could not listen to the record, obviously, before you picked it. You would just have to go off the name and the album cover because that's what was on the wall. And I remember seeing an album jacket with three angels smoking cigarettes and a band called Black Sabbath. And I'm like, that's going to piss off my parents. I'm getting that one. <laughs> I, I had loosely heard of Black Sabbath before, but I, I'd be lying if I said I knew them or their records or Ozzy or any of them. And I just remember like, yeah, I heard of this band, what, what have you. And I took that record. I won it. I took it home and I put the needle down and I heard Neon Knights and I heard this voice, this chugging riff and this voice. And again, I'm 15 at this point, And I was just like, whoa, I mean, my world was changed. And to this day, Heaven and Hell it's one of my favorite albums of all time. It's probably my all-time favorite Sabbath record. Yeah. And then, of course, I went back. I remember the, the next thing I bought was the greatest hits record. We sold our souls of, of all the Aussie stuff. And if you have that gatefold, it opens up and there's a woman in a casket with a cross. And I'm like, that's really going to piss my parents off. But, <laughs> but I listened to that and I was like, and I, and I truly do love, of course, who wouldn't? That's the roots of heavy metal. But there's just something incredibly special about Heaven and Hell into Mob Rules. And then I got a whole new appreciation for Dehumanizer, actually, after they started doing songs from that in the reunion back in around 06. Yeah. I mean, just endless stories from me being a kid to loving Ronnie and loving Dio and Rainbow and Sabbath and all of that. But then also just the whole 180 for me as my career progressed, becoming close with him, doing so much with him, having so many amazing experiences, radio, TV, friendship, et cetera. It's just a crazy, crazy thing when I look back on it. And then being so lucky for Demian and Don and Wendy to ask me to be in this documentary. And ever since Ronnie passed to be able to do all the charity events, Wendy's done an amazing job with the Dio Cancer Fund. Just to be a part of this family and this world is super important to me because not only is the cause great, not only are we celebrating a guy that was great. And I talk about this with Wendy all the time. The times we all come together, it, it really feels so much like Ronnie's still with us because it's just that whole gathering. It's that whole spirit that Ronnie had keeping us all together. 
I love in the documentary too, like it, it's always a big task when, you know, Dio's stepping into the to Aussie's shoes and he just he crushes it. He does a great job. And like Eddie said, and I agree, I think Mob Rules is probably my all time favorite Sabbath record. And Voodoo might be my favorite Sabbath song. And I don't want to get too inside baseball, but at the end of the day, were Ozzy and Dio like cool? Was there animosity between them? Was that fabricated? Did they ever really meet each other and say what's up as far as you know no they they moved in different worlds i mean i think yeah. the press wanted to make them fight i don't think they ever did i mean i don't know maybe ronnie might have said something or Elsie might have said something just in passing here and there but you know the press always blows things up and sure said we, we didn't really walk, walk in in the same world so we ne really never crossed crosses with the press. No, I mean, I see Sharon once in a while. I mean, we don't work in the same circles or anything, but if I see her, I say hi. She says hi. I mean, I saw her in Montecito a few weeks ago and just say hi, how you doing, blah, blah, blah. You know, no, no, it's no amnesty. I think it's a testament to just how talented Ronnie was to step into a band like Black Sabbath because, you know, as Eddie said, like being a Kiss fan, like, you know, Metalhead specifically, very tribal, very protective, very like, no, you didn't like this first. This is <laughs> mine. This is not yours. Like, there's a lot of like ownership that comes with listening to this music. And especially if you are somebody that, you know, I, I have a million stories growing up. Like when you found a band like Nirvana, I found Nirvana before they were anybody. And then when they blew up and all these people were like, oh, Nirvana, have you heard? I'm like, I hate you right now. Like you don't like Nirvana. Like I like them. You know, it's like, we have that feeling. So I feel like there's that, that same thing that like black Sabbath was such, you know, they, they, you know, it's the bedrock of heavy metal, you know, like those, you know, the first four to six black Sabbath records are like undeniable. I mean, they're, they're ingrained in, in our, in our DNA. So for someone to come in and take over, for this like band that so many people like there's only one singer of black Sabbath, you know, for him to come in and not, and obviously you're going to have people that are going to be skeptical, like Ronnie James Dio, like he can't take over for Ozzy, like all that stuff. And I think like the scene that we put in the movie, you know, is like kind of a, you know, obviously it's fictionalized, but it's the culmination of that. You're not going to be able to like bag on this dude. As soon as he opens his mouth, it's all, <laughs> like you can't say anything yeah. and it's undeniable. So I think like that's such a testament to how Ronnie kind of won over the Sabbath fan base. And then, you know, obviously the uh, the Maloik that kind of comes out of that whole experience is just another part of like musical history, you know, that was born out of Ronnie trying to make this band his own band like that and make sure that like, you know, the spirit of Ozzy was there. But like, I'm the guy, now, you know, and I thought that was so powerful. It's such a great moment it's such a great moment because ozzy always flashed the peace sign so dio wanted his own version which of course was the maloik or as everyone calls it the dio horns that's what we called it in high school junior high school it was never the devil horns it was the dio horns it was never like evil it's dio man now let's talk about that wendy because once again you're talking about one of the greatest the, the greatest symbol for heavy metal it even made the emojis you can even find a, a dio a dio hand on the emojis Let's talk about that and how just it became so massive and so huge and kind of the origins behind it. Well, you know, Ronnie came from upstate New York, a uh, working class family. His grandfather worked in a steel mill. Even from five years old, he would walk with his grandma to the steel mill to give his, uh, his grandpa his lunch. And uh, old Italians, you know, and uh, that's it. Old Italian sign, Maloit, goes back thousands of years to ward off evil or to give the evil eye. And he would see his grandma doing that sign all the way down the road. <laughs> Very superstitious. And, you know, I think that when Ronnie, you know, uh, went into Sabbath, he didn't want to do the peace sign because that belonged to Ozzy. And I think just one day he just did that sign. It just took off. You know, a lot of people say, oh, it's a deal sign, but Ronnie didn't own it. You know, he just did it and made it famous. But it was you know, old Beloit for thousands of years ago. Old Italian sign. I'm half Italian, and I grew up in a super dominant Italian household. When I first started seeing that, I had seen it before because exactly what Wendy said. I mean, my grandfather and my mother and my aunt, all the Italian superstitions, and they would do that. And I remember talking to Ronnie about it. And I kind of, I remember one of the times I interviewed him, I kind of pulled him aside. He said, 
I said, my mother and my grandmother, they called that the Maloika. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah. And he copped right to it. He goes, yeah, that's where it comes from. If you have that heritage, for sure, there's some history to it beyond Dio. But, of course, Ronnie made it famous for, for rock music. You know it's famous when Gene Simmons tries to copyright. <laughs> well, a lot of people have tried to take credit for it, a lot of people. But you know what? Who cares? It's not taking credit for it. It's an old sign that belongs to the old Italians. It doesn't belong to anybody. But Ronnie made it what it is he for rock is, music, right. without a doubt. I was uh, I went and saw Dio once and um, asked someone to take a picture. And I, ha- I ha- actually happened to have a glass of red wine, which is funny because that's what Ronnie drank too, right? And when I went to put my arm around him, I accidentally turned my arm and it spilled some wine on his shoulder. He was wearing a black, the, the neck kind of is really loose. And I spilled it on his shoulder and I was mortified. I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, you just have to call him Dio, right? I'm so sorry, Dio. I didn't mean to spill on you. He's like, oh, it's okay. He's like, I'm glad you didn't put a curse on me. He goes, how do you know I won't? And he gave me the Maloy. And I was like, ah, Dio just cursed me. No. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. I'm a, a growing up, I grew up in Winnipeg, Canada, probably 1984 on 92 City FM. I remember this song comes on the radio and I thought it was called Everlasting Life. Everlasting Life. It was last in line. And it took me a couple of weeks to try like, do you have the song called Everlasting Life? No, it's, it's, it's on the radio right now. Finally, it was last in line. And that's the first time I ever, ever heard Dio. And I was all in. It was Dio, a thousand percent in Winnipeg. Everybody loved Dio. And I love the story once again, Wendy, about how Ronnie leaves Sabbath and here you guys are again with, you know, 800 bucks in the bank or whatever the hell it is. And you got to start from scratch. How were you able to do that? Was there enough of a buzz about Ronnie to, to get, obviously to get a solo record deal, but was it kind of like, let's just do it on our own and everybody else at this point? Yeah, well, you know, there was a lot of problems going on in the Sabbath camp at that time. Uh, you're talking about when Ronnie left Sabbath, right, the first time? Yeah, and, and to start Dio, yeah. Yeah, I mean, but there was a lot of things, a lot of drugs going on and stuff, and it was just, like, uncomfortable for Ronnie. And Ronnie liked to always be uh, with friends. He liked to be you know, everybody camaraderie, and, and it just wasn't happening anymore. And uh, he had gotten a solo deal, which wasn't very much money, but we'd gotten a solo deal during the career of Sabbath, and he just decided, you know what, I'm going, I'm leaving. And, you know, that was a big shock with me, real big shock, because – I didn't know what we were going to do. And, you know, we had a bit of money that he'd made from Sabbath, but to put on a stage show and to do uh, go out and do that is very expensive. You've got all the buses and trucks and people and everything, rehearsals and hotels and per diems and wages to pay. Uh, we actually mortgaged our house. We had a house at the time, a small house, and we mortgaged that to so that he could go out and have a big stage set just like Sabbath. We, we had no idea that it was the Holy Dive was going to be, you know, we didn't know if it was going to be good bad whatever nobody knew but i will tell you there was a lot a lot of hard work and a lot of fright and when in that first show i went to and saw the kids and how they accepted it with goosebumps all over me it was like oh my god it's actually worth all the work and all the worry and all the frustration it's worked and it was i was i was elated completely elated Eddie, once again, going through kind of the timeline here, when, when Ronnie leaves and starts his own band, what was kind of the, the temperature for you guys on the East Coast for Dio? I think for a lot of people, this is going to sound crazy to say, but I think that there was a fair amount of people that to them, Ronnie James Dio and the band Dio was new. That was like their first introduction to him and his voice. Again, a lot depends upon your age. If you're 10 years older than say I am, you'd probably be like, well, that's crazy. But the reality is, is that Rainbow was not a huge thing in America with Ronnie. And then you had these kind of divided camps. I mean, Ronnie talked about it many times. And I, I don't know if he does in the doc. I, it's been a little bit since I saw it. But 
he told me many times that when he was out there with Sabbath, as great as those two records are, he was still dealing with a lot of blowback. He, he said many times on my show, he'd walk out on stage with Sabbath to a lot of middle fingers. You know, as great as it was, it wasn't Ozzy, where's Ozzy? So it took a while for him to overcome that. And it was kind of like divided camp. I think with Dio, the band, it was the first time it was him. His name was on it front and center. It was clearly his thing. To a lot of people, that may have been their introduction to him and his voice and his talent. The video for Rainbow in the Dark quickly was like all over MTV. I mean, MTV was a, a newish thing at that time and uh, really starting to have a big impact. And my friends and I, I mean, we would sit around. I, I talked about this on my radio show the other day. I used to put a VHS tape in, play, record, pause. And you keep the thing paused and then you wait and get through the yeah. Madonna and Paula Abdul videos. And then as soon as it was like, there's Ronnie Rainbow, they're like, release pause and you record <laughs> it. You know? And then it would end and you did. I still have those tapes in the other room. So for a lot of people, I think because of the birth of MTV, because of the videos that were so big for Holy Diver and Rainbow in the Dark and later on Last in Line. I mean, because of all that, I think. With the birth of the band Dio, Ronnie went on a whole different reach and level. And I know that sounds crazy coming out of Black Sabbath, but again, remember where Sabbath was just before yeah. Ronnie joined. I mean, they were down and out and considered old news, and Ronnie breathed new life in it, made a couple brilliant records, but it was it was an uphill climb. I think with Dio, it was like it all came together. You had the fans of Rainbow and Sabbath, who, of course, would have loved what Ronnie was doing. But then you had Ronnie really reaching a younger audience and a brand new audience, I think, with Dio. One of my favorite parts of the documentary is where the hell did you find that footage of the photographer taking? I know it might have been a recreation, but the pictures yeah. of the of the holy diver getting thrown into the ocean, yeah. wrapped in chains. But is that really, is the cover really a, a combination of a photo and a, an artwork? No, they were taking reference photos. Oh. Here he goes. They were, they were taking reference photos. And what's funny about that scene, we had shot the interview with Gene, who tells that story. Wendy also tells the story. And this was pre-pandemic. So we thought, <laughs> we got to get this movie going. So the exteriors were shot. Where, where was that? In a... Paradise Cove. But then we came home. We're from Philly. So we shot the stuff in the water uh, in February. February at Atlantic City. So we're all in the water in February with wetsuits on. So that's how that went down. But yeah, they were shooting reference photos to then illustrate for that cover. That poor guy with wrapped in chains, Wendy. That <laughs> Lucky he survived. All the original photos were lost. You know, Gene had the original photos, but he couldn't find them. So, you know, I mean, they actually did do that. And that guy was Gene Hunter, who yeah. was the guy that was in the wetsuit originally. And then Gene Kirkland shot it. Because the thing was, when we, we had this vision that we wanted to do of the album cover, but neither Ronnie I, neither one of us can draw anything. So we had to kind of portray to the guy what we wanted. And the reason Ronnie wanted that, I mean, it shocked a lot of people, the record label, because they didn't care that much because it was a solo record. They just let it slide, so they let it go through. But what Ronnie was really trying to portray was like, okay, so you've got a monster, must be a bad guy, and you've got a priest, must be a good guy. But Ronnie's thing was, why do you know that that is? Why, don't, why do you judge a person by his clothes? You know, and that was Ronnie's whole thing. Don't judge a person by the, the, what they're wearing or what they are, too short, too fat, too whatever. It's inside of them what's really important. And maybe that's a good guy, the monster, and maybe it's a bad guy, the priest. So that was his whole message. But we had to portray it without either one of us being able to draw. <laughs> that was the single most my like one of the most mind-blowing things about this documentary when I saw it. As soon as I walked out, I was just like, wait, that actually happened? Like yeah. I always thought that it was just like a freehand drawing of some sort. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I remember chasing after Demi and the Don. I'm like, wait, that that was actually that actually was took place at some point. Like that was actually a thing. Yeah. And and then when I did a special with Wendy recently for the re-release of Holy Diver. Gene Kirkland was there and I pulled him up on stage during the interview and I was like, you got to talk about this. Like, 
How did it like it blew my mind that that actually happened? <laughs> you know what else blew my mind too? And I'm a I'm a major horror movie fan. And I text Eli Roth, all my horror movie friends. I said I was this many days old when I found out that Don Coscarelli directed the last in line video now don coscarelli did phantasm bubba hotep he's a famous famous horror movie director i had no idea no wonder that video is so cool <laughs> the coolest video in the history of music videos man and don the best the, one of the best things is when we started this project you know obviously we're huge dio fans and then dem and i started talking about like who we should interview and we should talk he's like well, dude, we got to talk about the last in line video. That's literally the greatest video of all time. And I was like, yeah, we could get into that or whatever. And then Dem wouldn't let it go. So we happened to be in Los Angeles and we we're trying to like book, you know, it was like the, the lull in the pandemic where um, we couldn't shoot for a while. And then the things kind of opened up for a minute. And then we like bum rushed and like went to Arizona to do Rob Halford and Lita Ford and Don Dockin. And then we did like this crazy long trip in LA to try to get as much done as we could. And then I didn't have any way to contact Don Coscarelli and Wendy didn't have his contact info anymore. So I found him on Twitter and I had like sent him a message on Twitter. Just like, I mean, you know, what are the chances? Maybe he'll look at it. At it. Maybe he won't. So he ended up getting back to me while we were there. And he's like, I'd like to do this. Like, what's your guys schedule? I'm like, well, we're in LA now. Is it possible to like do it, you know, like this week? And he's like, well, I could do it now. And we somehow had like <laughs> hours to kill. So I had to like scramble and try to find a location, which is why that like the place where we shot him, that his interview doesn't look like anything else in the movie because we ended up shooting this fucking weird warehouse in the middle of nowhere <laughs> that had like all these like weird props in the back. So we did the best we could to like have some kind of a backdrop setting. That was such a big moment for Dem and I and specifically Dem because he worships that music video you know, just to get into that story and, and to know that like it came on the heels of Ronnie actually being, I don't think we put this in the movie, but Ronnie was a fan of Don's phantasm. Like he loved his work. So he had, he had asked Warner brothers to reach out to get that director. Don is a super nice guy as well. Super cool. Guy. So cool. Was Ronnie a horror movie fan? Wendy, would you consider him to be a horror movie fan? Absolutely. Horror movies, science fiction, you tell He'd read a book a day, you know, and he loved science fiction, horror movies, any of that stuff. He loved it. Or fantasy, everything. Yep. Did it surprise you? Um, maybe surprise is, isn't the right word. Were, were you gratified when you saw just how big deal the solo project got so quickly? Because it was an arena act, at least by Last in Line. Maybe it was for Holy Diver too, but I remember Last in Line was an arena level band already right out of the gate. It was surprising. Uh, it was wonderful. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I'm very proud of Ronnie. I was thinking that now he's actually getting his just dues, which mm. we didn't get before. Yeah. It's funny because I remember Philadelphia Dio live from the Spectrum in Philadelphia it was the video cassette. Once again, ordered it, and he had the whip blow up stuff, and he had like this early laser beam in the back with the Dio logo and. He always, and I'm, I'm sure you were involved in that too, but his view and his vision for the stage show was always bigger. You know, Maiden had a great show, and but Dio's was right next to it, in my opinion, as far as just how grandiose it could be. And I'm sure that cost you guys quite a lot of money, but a lot as of you money know. And the band would always bitch about it, but Ronnie wanted, he always said, he wanted to give value for money for the fans. You know, they have been good to him, and he wanted to give back, and, and that was his vision. He wanted to do Disneyland. You know, that those lasers, that was a whole truck full of lasers that cost a fortune. You know, we had an 18-foot fire-breathing dragon, a working drawer <laughs> bridge you know and <laughs> it, was, it was crazy but, but you know that's what Ronnie wanted and so therefore that's what he got you know did you see those shows Eddie oh yeah I mean I loved when Ronnie would take the sword and fight the dragon you know like you know like joust with it and all of that the talking uh whatever it was like an oracle or the globe or whatever that had his the head in it those were epic shows I saw I saw all of them when they came through. The Sacred Heart Tour was huge, too. That was just unbelievably epic. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. 
talk about Ronnie's relationship with his fans when you've touched on it a few times and it's definitely you see that within within the movie and, and, and like I said like Dio I only had the pleasure probably half a dozen times maybe ten times seemed like I'm like a, just a very wise guy and maybe it's just because I was biased because it's Dio like I feel like Jack Black like Dio tell us the answer but but just for an example we opened for Motorhead at the at the Wiltern in LA and Dio was there just watching the show and um and I was talking to him for a bit and very complimentary which was amazing because it's hard opening for Motorhead he's like oh you did a great job he has a very deep calming voice and he was signing autographs for everybody outside the entryway I said, that's pretty cool that you're signing. It's not even your gig. And he said, no, it doesn't matter whose gig it is. He said, he said, always give people their moment. He said, you won't remember it, but they'll never forget it. Always give people their moment. And this is me 20 years later, every day, whenever I see somebody that's fortunate enough to be, I'm fortunate enough to have as a fan of mine, I always go out of my way. Hey, Chris, you always go out of your way. Yeah. You know why? Because Dio told me to. Always give people their moment. And that's something I, you, I can tell you, Wendy. I'll never, I'll live with that the rest of my life. And I think of Ronnie every single day. And what a wise, simple statement. But man, it seemed like he really believed that. Oh, he did. He definitely did. He loved his fans. He loved the people. He never forgot where he came from. He always knew that they were the reason why he was able to do what he loved to do. He said, you know, it's, it's a moment in my time, but they'll remember it for the rest of their life. And you know what? Just, uh, you know, he wanted to make people happy. He wanted people to follow their dreams. And that's the thing. And then part of the following their dream was to sign an autograph for him. It's no big deal to him. You know, I mean, it was like it was just a second for him, but he knew that that's what they wanted. And he loved people. He loved fans. He had an amazing memory. He could remember a person like six years later and say, oh, hi, so-and-so, what his name was, and how was your kid, and whatever. And, and he genuinely loved his fans. They were number one. Animals number two. I was number three. <laughs> Chris, you know, I, I'll tell you what, that influence was enormous on me seeing how he treated people later on in my career. Because when I got my TV show going and I became very recognizable at shows and stuff, to this day, my friends hate going to rock shows with me. And I'm sure you feel the same way because people are like, yo, Eddie, or yo, Chris, you know, and, and, and take a photo or whatever they want. I never have said no in my life because I learned from Ronnie. I saw him do it. He would come to my radio studio. We'd be on the air till two o'clock in the morning. We'd walk out on the streets of New York City and there'd be people out there. And I, many other artists would be like, hey, man, just get me in the car. Let me go. He'd stand out there for an hour or two, sign, take photos. It was incredible. I would have my phone screeners change like every three months, every six months, interns or whatever. I could barely keep track of their names. He would come in and be like, oh, hi, Holly. How are you today? It would like floor me as like, how is that at all possible? So... There was so much influence above and beyond the music on so many people, myself included. But the one thing that I think is important to get across for people who are lucky enough to know Ronnie is I think a lot of people pigeonhole him as being like a super serious, always intense, serious guy. He was a <laughs> ball buster beyond belief. And <laughs> I was the brunt of a lot of it because he used to love to wind me up. You could have so much fun with him. I mean, I remember sitting in a place called Roxall Abbey in England in 06 when he got back with Sabbath. We both arrived at this hotel at the same time. I, you know, I was on jet lag. I just wanted to go to sleep. And he, he always called me kid. He's like, no way, kid. You're coming to the bar. So we were up all night at the bar telling stories. And that night, UFO, a band I also love, was playing. And he just wound me up the whole time. He's like, you know, if I was a big, as big of a UFO fan as you were, I wouldn't be sitting here in this lobby right now. I mean, you, if you were a real fan, you'd be at the show. And I'm like, Ronnie, they're playing on the other side of England. He goes, you know, if I was a real fan, I'd find a way to get there. I really don't know. And it went on and on. So he would love to wind me up like that to the point where he's like, come on, I'm going to rent a car. I'm going to drive you to the show. I go, you're not driving. We went 15 pints of beer. I'm like, we're not driving to the show. But he loved to push buttons and have fun too. And as Wendy can attest, he was a huge sports fan. He told me so many times some of his biggest songs were written from watching sports. And we shared a bond of the Giants and football. So there's just so many things I think that people um, have these 
notions of him of being almost like this dark medieval kind of character, you know, very serious all the time and intense. Sure, there's some of that projected in the music, but he loved to bust balls. We had so much fun. Don and Dan, did you did you guys get that vibe too from all the interviews and the footage that you saw? Yeah, we definitely got that vibe. I think we got the vibe he liked to bust balls. We got the vibe. The thing that I love so much and sort of jumps into what you guys were talking about a little bit before is that we talk so much when we tell stories about the American dream, working really hard and achieving your goals and never, you know, Ronnie's the embodiment of that. But he takes it to that next level, which is when you get there, you have to be cool. You have to stay cool and you have to try to pull the others up. You know, so many people get to the top and I think they feel they're there. They're separate from the rest of the world. And Ronnie made it the rest of his life's mission to empower people and pull them up. And so that's the kind of that's the stuff that really came through in the footage that just inspiration. As we start to wind down here, I remember the last time I saw Heaven and Hell was probably that tour was probably only about a year a year and a half before he passed away, their last tour. It was very, very close. He sounded great, man. He still had that power. He still had the presence. I remember just, I, I went and saw him in Tampa here where I live now. And I was like, holy shit, this Dio's amazing. God, Dio. Was it just natural, Wendy? Did he do anything for that voice? Because it, when you get older, as we all know, sometimes you lose some of that power. But he didn't, as far as I could tell, at least that night. Fine wine. No, I <laughs> because, you know, Ronnie's training from playing the trumpet so many years that he sang from his diaphragm. Mm -hmm. That's why he had such a powerful voice. I mean, obviously he had the talent, but he knew how to work his voice and how to use his voice and that he never lost his voice. And I think that that's one of the things that he would could never have lived with if he had lost his voice, which he didn't, luckily. Chris, you know, it's amazing too, and you probably know this, he never warmed up, warmed down, nothing, no ritual at all. Yeah, I know. They'd come in, they say 15 minutes to stage, Ronnie. I'd be like, Ronnie, let me let you get ready. He'd be like, what do you mean get ready? We'd walk to the stage. I'd go out and do a, an intro, bring him on. He'd just come out and sing. He, he didn't do anything pre, post, anything in terms of vocal. You see guys screaming into towels, doing all this stuff. Just went out and sang. I seem to, <laughs> I know Ronnie didn't smoke cigarettes per se did for a while okay so see i remember him before that gig after he cursed me of him having a fucking cigarette at some point I'm like dude aren't you singing he's like yeah so what do you want let's go let's rock you know it's just one of those naturally talented guys and that that's the thing that that, that just just resonates i was gonna say though eddie we're talking now and, and wendy said it now ronnie's just starting to get his due and when you see all of the love from all of these, these, these amazing musicians or even like patient number nine, Ozzy's new record with all of his Eric Clapton's and the Beck's. And do you think Dio would, would now be getting even more uh, love and more attention from kind of the more mainstream world if he was still with us today? I would hope so, but I don't know. I don't, Ronnie didn't care about that. You know, I mean, he, he just wanted to do his music, play his music. He probably would have gone into producing young bands because that was something that he was interested in doing. But Ronnie could only do one thing at one time. Mm -hmm. You know, people would ask him to do different things. He said, no, no, I, I'm, I'm, doing, I'm, I'm doing the tour and I'm writing songs. And I'm in the album. He was asked to do a radio show. He said, no, no, later on down the line, you know, right now I'm busy with this. So he only wanted to concentrate on one thing at the time. But I think had he not passed away, he would have gone into producing other records for, for younger bands because he did. He was always trying to create, even with his own bands, to make them play better, to do things like with Doug Aldridge. He had like so much frustration with Ronnie saying he's pushing me so hard he's pushing me so hard but after Ronnie he had left the band he said you know Ronnie made me a better player because of what he did you know and, and mm -hmm. that's the way Ronnie was and to me it's amazing when you look at the end of his life when you look at the final record being that record under the name Heaven and Hell which to me it's a Sabbath record but the record The Devil You Know and you hear a song like Bible Black <laughs> and you hear the vocal on that and you hear that record to look at the Dio history from the earliest, if you want to say, okay, I know there was health and things like that, but just in terms of the real hard rock world, but look at the first Rainbow record through The Devil You Know, like the quality and consistency of that work is unbelievable. You listen to a song like Bible Black and you're like, I mean, that's as good as anything he ever did. And that was 
at the very end of his life. And when you talk about getting his due, one of the things that for me personally, as a voter, not a nominator, but as a voter for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the, he needs to be in there and he needs to be in there for lifetime achievement. I will say it and I don't care where the, it falls. It was a travesty and criminal that he was not included with Sabbath as he should have been. And for whatever reasons exist there, it was a disgrace that that didn't happen. But you know what? Better off because he's going to get in and he's going to get in for his entire body of work. And I've already been lobbying. And Wendy doesn't even know this. I've been lobbying the people who do nominate. And when you see the way Randy Rhodes went in, rightfully so, that's how Dio should go in for his whole body of work and his whole influence. And that has to happen. So Whatever his due may or may not have been critically at this point, if he was still alive, to me, that's important and has to happen and will happen. And hopefully I'm still I'm still alive to see it because it's got to <laughs> happen. It makes me nuts that it didn't happen already. But trust me, I am pushing every button I can behind the scenes to get that done. I also think like this, the film is a great really coming at a good time where I feel like, you know, there are a lot of artists you know, that we revere in our mainstream culture or whatever that are on their fourth or fifth or maybe even sixth documentary about themselves. There's another David Bowie documentary. Dave, I love David Bowie. There's plenty of documentaries about David Bowie. There's not, this is the first one about Ronnie James Dio. You know, hopefully that it was worth the wait because it really is mind blowing, especially the way all, we all grew up that like people, that Dio isn't more of like a household name. We were trying to figure out like what, you know, why was that? You know, like, you know, obviously, you know, everybody knows Ozzy because equally more people might know him and from a certain generation just from being on a reality show. And that's why he broke into the mainstream. And obviously he has, you know, his the fabled stories of biting heads off bats and snorting piss from with Motley Crue and all that kind of you know, those types of stories. And and I think like in a way, like Ronnie is the antithesis of all of that. Cause you know, as Wendy said in the beginning. Ronnie's story isn't the sex, drugs, and rock and roll story. It's a it's actually a little bit of a tough story to tell because it's the antithesis of all that stuff. It's about somebody who like perseveres and had one amazing career after the next after the next. I mean, like the McWall in the uh, in the in the film says, you know, here's a guy like he's already done Rainbow, he's already done Black Sabbath. There's no way he has a third huge band under his belt with Dio. And it's like, he's like Muhammad Ali. He really is like this guy, like he won't quit. Everything he does, it gets better and better and better. And so just from the sheer, the people, I mean, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and that, I think that's awesome, Eddie, what you're doing. That stuff is like, I know it's important to certain people. And I do, I do think it's important to like overall mainstream perception of like what's good or what's not. But right. we're, like metal has never been a part of that that world in general but i do think like when people see the amount of in the body of ronnie's work because i think a lot of people know man on the silver mountain i think a lot of people know stargazer like they've heard these songs they might not know that ronnie was the singer i think a lot of people forget that he was the singer after ozzy and sabbath and then you know when you talk about a solo career you're like oh you know that song holy diver and they're like oh yeah i know that song but he doesn't have that like brand awareness from a like on the mainstream. And I hope this film, much like what Stranger Things has done for Metallica and Kate Bush and, and Dio. Dio having you know, the back patch on and stuff like however people in this day and age are discovering music. Awesome. You know, as long as they're, it's it's all there. We live in a world right now where it, like everything is accessible to you. And nobody can find shit because there's just too much stuff, you know? And so like, however people find Dio now, I think they're going to be, what a gift, what a treat to find Dio in 2022 as a 19 year old kid, knowing you have like 150 songs waiting for you to change your life. Right. That's pretty cool. And I got to say this, having seen the film and I think Don and Demian's film is absolutely going to go a long way towards advancing Ronnie's standing in the public space and the perception of Ronnie. Yeah. I do think it will open the eyes of something like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. There's no way anybody on that nominating committee can watch this film and not realize the career this man has had, that so many people he's touched, 
the different genres of music he operated in. I mean, just known as the metal guy, sure, but the diversity of the music he was a part of, how, how early he started, the influence. I mean, I think in this two-hour film, it's going to open so many people's eyes, and I think it's going to go a long way towards advancing what we want to happen. Make no mistake, I have very, very mixed feelings about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but when I see some of the people that are in it, and Ronnie, for us and for the fans and for history, that's got to happen. And I really do think this film's going to help drive it. Last question, Eddie. What's your favorite obscure Dio song? All right. You mentioned Mob Rules before. The final song on that album, Over and Over, <laughs> one of the greatest vocal performances in the history of music. I'm getting chills just talking about it. So you want Over and Over for Mob Rules is insane. Thank you, Eddie. How about you, Don? Eddie stole mine. Oh, but I will minds. say Egypt. It would be the the runner up to that. It's the last. It's always the last songs. The last song on Last in Line. Egypt, like unbelievable. I'm going uh, later. Dio. I'm going Jesus, Mary, and the Holy Ghost. Whoa! All right. What a man. tune. Dem. Oh man, it's so funny. I'm going to steal Wendy's now <laughs> by saying Gates of Babylon. <laughs> <laughs> because you stole. We all stole each other's. Rainbow Eyes, because Ronnie wrote that about me. About you. Beautiful. And last thought, are you happy with the documentary overall? I am so elated. They did everything I wanted them to do and more. It's a great documentary for anybody that likes Dio or even has never even heard the name Ronnie James Dio, if there's even somebody out there. It's a great story. And thank you so much, guys, for talking to me today. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Always a pleasure to see you, Wendy. And thank you, boys. Dude, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody. Good to see everybody. Long live rock and roll. <laughs> see you guys next week.